This is Fernando Medina, and you're listening to the Bladeology Podcast. Okay, so we're going to jump into it like we do every week. Welcome to another episode of the Bladeology podcast. We are on for episode 29 this week in the year 2020, if you can believe it. We are here with a guest tonight, and uh, we are here with a modified host lineup. This is the vocal representation of Jeremiah Burbank from PVK Vegas. Nick Chuprin of NCC Knives. And who do we have on as a guest this week? Laren Thomas. Laren, welcome to the Bladeology podcast. Um, I have been intrigued by your Instagram, the Knife Steel Nerds, for a while now. And uh, we finally were able to set up this talk. I'm, I'm pretty pumped, actually. Um, so let's, let's go over it. So what, um, why, uh, why are we here? Why are we talking? What, what do you do and, and how did you get to start doing it? Uh, I am a metallurgist. Oh, I work in steel professionally, so I develop automotive sheet steels. Uh, but the reason why I got into steel in the first place uh, was from knives, which is why I have the website, Instagram, uh, all about knife steel. So uh, the reason why I got interested in knife steel is because of my father. So his name is Devin Thomas. He makes Damascus steel. Uh, he started making uh, Damascus in the early 90s, late 80s, uh, and he was making knives before then. Uh, so uh, it was just around my whole life. That was his full-time job for as far back as I can remember. Uh, and so, you know, every day he went to work and made Damascus, and he would sell it to different knife makers. The the one and the only famous one. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, so... Uh, he he always told us that he was famous. So at, at school, we would brag about how we had a famous father. And the kids at school would ask us who he was, and we'd say Devin Thomas. And they never knew who we were talking about. So. They're wrong, hanging out with the wrong kids, man. Got to hang out with the knife kids. Yeah, that, yeah. That just, that's, that's like an inner joke we have as knife makers and uh, people in the community. It's like, oh, I'm famous in this small community you've never heard of. Yeah, so knives were always around. You know, my dad would make a knife here or there. As that was his original passion was knives. Uh, you know, Damascus was kind of the business that grew out of that. Uh, and so, you know, I had some interest in knives. I wouldn't say a ton of interest. You know, we'd get in like the A.G. Russell catalog or something in the mail and I would check it out and like, oh, this knife looks good. And my dad would say that knife's garbage, you know, or you need a knife in 154 cm, not this 420 or, you know, something like that. Uh, but then a as a teenager... Uh, he started taking me to knife shows. I guess before then, he took me to a hammer-in or two, uh, which was kind of fun. Uh, we went to Montana uh, for for those hammer-ins up there and had a good time there. Uh, and at the knife shows, there were always knife makers that would brag about how their knives were the best. You know, they cut longer or cut better, or they had secret steels or secret heat treatments. And that was always really interesting to me. And that is, is kind of what led to my interest in metallurgy. So, you know, I started reading everything I could uh, in my late teens. Uh, there was a book on metallurgy for knife makers by John Verhoeven that came out around when I was graduating from high school. 
Uh, but he had sent a couple draft chapters to my dad. Uh, they were familiar with each other. And uh, so I was able to read that and learn metallurgy. And I went to school for a long time and got my metallurgy degree. And yeah, so, but, you know, I, I like my job working on automotive sheet steel. It's a good job. It's an exciting area to develop steel in. Uh, but, you know, I wanted to do some stuff with knife steel. That was my original interest and passion. And so I decided to start the website and start doing experiments on steel. So, and it's been, it's been a good time. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to know, how, how'd you end up acquiring a, a Catra machine? Uh, I am consulting for a major knife company. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say which one. Uh, and they recently bought a new Catra edge retention tester. Uh, and so when we were talking about consulting and how I would be paid, I asked them about their old Catra tester and they said that it was kind of old and broken down. Uh, and I said, well, how about instead of paying me money that you ship me a Catra machine? So uh, they did. It was very broken by the time it got to me, uh, mostly from shipping. Uh, the problems that they were having with it, I have not experienced at all. The only problems I've had were new ones from shipping. Uh, but I got it fixed. It took me a month and a half, two months. Uh, so when my wife found out how much money I gave up uh, to get <laughs> yeah, the machine, was... she she was not that happy. And I've only spent more money since then. So, mm-hmm. Well, whenever Jeremiah told me you were going to be one of the guests, I checked your Instagram out. I wasn't too familiar with your Instagram. I saw the machine. I was like, wait. How serious is this guy about knife steel? I'm like, those aren't cheap machines. Also, now that you said you work for a company, I'm pretty sure I know what company based on the machine you had. Uh, well, some like, some companies are more vocal than others about their use of the catcher machine. Uh, so the the most vocal is probably Spiderco, maybe number two, Benchmade. Uh, there's a couple other companies that have reported well, various for the most studies. Part, it's it's usually just kitchen knife manufacturers that actually use a catcher machine. Uh, but it was that when I saw that, I was like, Oh, he's actually pretty serious. It makes a little bit more sense that you got it in the trade for work. Cause I was mm-hmm. like, did he purchase a, uh, one of those machines for like the, his passion of knife steels or what was going on? Cause I'm like, those are really expensive. Yeah. I never now could have gotten one they're, they're They're in the tens of thousands of dollars. I, I could not have justified that no matter how much I like steel. Oh, yeah, I told I told Jerry, I'm like, yeah, is, is this a hobby for him? Or he, like, he's really serious as a career? Because I'm like, that that's an investment. <laughs> but okay, it makes a lot more sense. Pretty cool. Uh, I've seen some of those in action before. Pretty neat. Yeah, I, I like it a lot. Uh, so it's been fun testing it. So I'll have an article on my website in the next few days uh, summarizing the tests that we've done so far. Because uh, I, I heat treated uh, 50 some odd blanks out of different steels uh, a few with a range of heat treatments and uh, I'm I uh, had Sean Houston he's a knife maker in Oregon uh, grind the bevels on them uh, I am a very bad knife maker and I don't have nearly enough time to grind 50 something knives uh, so he he ground them for me and I've been testing them all uh, and I got to retest them. So that means we had to get the same sharpening set up and the same stones so that I could resharpen them and test each one three times to get a good average. And so that'll be a really big article. Apparently, the only thing people care about is edge retention. Uh, it doesn't matter what else I talk about. They just want to know which steel cuts longer. So I will finally give them what they want. Huh. I mean, that's that's the there's a there's a two part interest there. First thing um 
can we go over what exactly that machine does just for the for listeners who aren't aware of, of exactly what that does? Yeah, sure. Uh, so the machine is it is very complicated to do something that is pretty simple. Uh, it cuts uh, paper, basically. It could accommodate other uh, other media, but it's designed for for these stacks of 10 millimeter wide paper. Uh, the paper has uh, about 5% sand in it. And what the sand does is just wears the edge faster. Uh, and so the machine puts the stack of paper on top of the knife under a fixed load, and then it moves the, the knife back and forth. And so as it cuts through the paper, the head of the machine travels downward. And so the machine measures how much it's traveling downward with each uh, slice that it performs. And so with each slice, it's going to cut a little bit less each time because the, the edge is wearing down. And uh, so you get a nice curve of, of uh, paper cut per slice. And so uh, and then it tallies up how much total paper it cut through over the full course of the run. And so you can compare different steels or different edges that way. Uh, is you know you can't compare two different knives and then say it's a test of steel, for example, uh, because the edge geometries are different. You know it, they could have even been sharpened differently if you're comparing them straight from the manufacturer. Uh, so you know you're comparing a whole knife. So if you want to compare just steel, you got to make sure every other variable is the same. Wow. Okay. No, that that makes that's highly logical. Um, so the machine basically slices sheets of paper mm-hmm. um and then so the if i'm looking at like a regular drop point blade i assume or, i mean are these are these ground a specific way or how does that work well it can accommodate different shapes uh the best shape to use is just a straight edge uh, because if there's any kind of curve to the edge that will affect how it's cutting you know you can imagine if it's cutting uphill versus cutting downhill you know like cutting into the curve of a blade then that would affect how it's slicing. Uh, so for these tests, they're all straight edges. They're just simple rectangular, uh, like shaped blanks with an edge on them. Uh, so that's what we're testing okay. right now. So just basically like a almost like a Warren cliff, like you're talking about, like literally straight. Yeah, they're an inch and a half wide. They're f- uh, four inches long, and then they've got about like a two and a half inch edge ground on it. Yeah, I saw for there you had, you had more like of a full flat kitchen knife style grind on there. Yeah, almost um, like you took a cleaver and then just like chopped off most of it. Oh. So we didn't really jump ahead here because I really want to talk with the Catra mm-hmm. before I forget uh, to later. There's a specific test that if you ever get to, I'd like you to do it's a test that's been argued a lot about back in the day. Uh, have you ever thought about comparing forged versus not forged steel? Uh, yeah, so that has been, uh, well, we've even done it some, uh, so I've done a lot of toughness testing over the past couple of years. The Catra is more recent. Uh, so we've compared forged 52100 versus stock removal 52100 for toughness. Uh, now the toughness tests, uh, I got to describe a whole nother test now. Uh, so the, the toughness test, we do a Sharpie impact test. And uh, they are also rectangles, but there's no edge put on them. And there's a really heavy weight, uh, like a hammer. And uh, you you 
it's on an arm and you swing the arm all the way up to a high angle and it's held like with a stop. You put the sample down at the bottom of the machine. Uh, then you you release the hammer and it falls through the, the steel rectangle and breaks it in half. Uh, now, if there were nothing there, like no steel specimen, it would travel all the way back up uh, on the other side at the same angle approximately, you know, minus friction. Uh, but when it breaks through a piece of steel, there's some energy loss, so it doesn't travel all the way up. And so the machine, you know, measures uh, how far it traveled up, and then that equates to the energy that passed through the steel. Uh, and and so that can be translated to some extent to chipping resistance in a knife. Uh, so we've done toughness experiments where we had forage 52100 and, and stock removal 52100. And... Uh, I mean, they were they were largely the same. The forged was a little bit better, but it's it's not really because it was forged. It's just you know the microstructure was a little bit different. The annealing treatment was different, so you know the end structure of the steel ends up a little bit different. And so in this case, it it was you know ten percent better or something. In case of edge retention, it's unlikely to make a difference, but. You know, if if a knife maker wants to wants to send me a couple blanks, he wants to forge one and not forge the other, then then we can talk. You can email me. Are you actually doing after the the that's done? Are you doing a snap test to check on the grain structure of the steel? Old story of a knife maker. Uh, I used to work alongside NJ Steel Baron, so I, I I met a lot of forgers over that time. Old story about a forger who specifically forged the two. And I forget what the scale is used to actually check uh, check the uh, the the grain of steel and how fine it is. But uh, I remember he specifically used to do D two and Niagara did a bunch of tests or Crucible did a bunch of tests on his D two and he kept telling them that he could get his D two finer as fine as a powder steel. And you're familiar with D two; it's not a very fine steel. Uh, he forged it and he treated it in such a way that. He would get it to as fine as a powder steel. He'd submit it to Crucible or Niagara, and they test it, and they'd be they'd be astonished at the results. And they would try processes to mimic, uh, like microforging the steel as it's rolled out and stuff like that to mimic his results. They just couldn't get it, and that was the main reason why I asked if you did tests on forged versus not forged. If you know if you've noticed, uh, I don't know if you're doing snap tests on the steel to check the grain structures or anything like that. Um. That was the main reason. Fifty two one hundred is pretty fine in itself, um, co- compared to something like D two or some of the ten series. Okay, so you, you've opened up a lot of things. Uh, one is a, a great story about uh, the metallurgist that couldn't couldn't match the knife maker and his astounding forging skills. Uh, I, I I don't know if that's true or not. It's it's a good story. Uh, the other is where you're talking about refining the grain. Uh, but also D2, its grain size is not that coarse. It's the carbide structure, which is. And so grains and carbides are two different things in steel. Uh, so grains are a little bit harder to to explain. So I'll start with carbides. So with carbides, they are hard particles in the steel. Uh, so you know, carbide, it's a f- form of carbon combined with either iron or other elements. So in D2, for example, it's got a bunch of chromium, so it forms a lot of chromium carbides in it. And uh, those can be difficult to control their size, especially when there's a lot of it. And D2 has a lot of chromium carbides, so they tend to be uh, large. And that uh, makes the toughness of the steel worse 
because the larger carbides are easier to fracture. And so the the steel will actually initiate a crack at those big carbides and then grow through the rest of the, the knife, for example. So those are carbides. And grains are, are individual crystals in a steel. So in steel, there are all these repeating arrays of, of atoms that are all in like a nice grid-like structure, sort of. Uh, but they're not in that perfect array all throughout the steel. They they will change direction, and there will be multiple different crystals, all with different orientations of that grid pattern that are all combined together. And uh, so those all form grains, and you can see those if you if you use special acid etchants, like you polish some steel and you etch it in acid, it'll reveal those boundaries. And uh, you can even pull them out like little three-dimensional little crystals if you etch them correctly. Now, you also mentioned fracture grain. So if you break a brittle piece of steel, uh, the the fracture surface will will sort of represent how fine the grains are. So you're not seeing the actual grains, but there's a very good correlation between the fracture appearance and the grain size. And so whenever I break a specimen in a toughness test, uh, you can see the fracture surface because, uh, you know, it's broken. It's just like any test where mm-hmm. you broke a piece of steel. Yeah, and, I used to, NJ Steelbar, every time they got a new steel, we would, we would pretty much do that to see the structure. Just quick, easy. Like you mentioned, it's an easier way to do it. And you, you get a rough idea of what's going on when you snap a hardened link. Mm-hmm. And so uh, refining carbide structures, a lot of forging bladesmiths don't forge those higher alloy steels like D2. Uh, They find them difficult to work with or crack more easily, or uh, they want something that's easier to anneal in their forge, which is difficult to do with an air hardening steel like D2. Uh, It is possible to some extent to refine carbide structures through forging. Uh, that would be very difficult to do with D2. Uh, and that is because the carbides are stable up to the melting temperature of the steel. Uh, so you can't just forge it really hot and get rid of the the carbides and make them reform smaller. Uh, and uh, actually heating it up to high temperature also causes the carbides themselves to coarsen. They actually get bigger. So you have to forge in the correct temperature range. And with enough reduction, you can shrink the carbide somewhat. Uh, making them as small as a powder metallurgy steel is uh, sounds unlikely. But maybe maybe Crucible would back up the story. I don't know. Yeah, I don't remember which one. Uh, I don't remember that forger's name either. It's been a while since I've gone over that story with Aldo. It's definitely been about three or four years. Uh, next time I see Aldo, I'm going to ask him, though. I'm, I'm curious now, too. Sorry, I forgot about. But uh, yeah, I remember talking with, uh, I guess it was Niagara, because I remember talking with Jeff about it, Mm -hmm. which is uh, one of the reps at Niagara. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Niagara Specialty Metals, they they roll out all of the Crucible steels. Uh, They're they're one of the the only companies that can roll out steel, um, these kind of knife steels down to the right thickness that we need. So Niagara is a cool company. So and they also sell steel directly. But you guys don't have a sponsorship with a steel distributor, do you? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yet. No. Working on it though, huh? All right. I, I, I just buy the stuff. Fortunately, they don't pay me. I just sell the stuff, I guess. You know. I don't know. <laughs> um. All right. So yeah, let's let's dive back a little bit. Um. 
I've I've built up a few questions here, but so okay, so how did you? I mean, obviously, okay, so Devin is your dad, and Steel's been a part of your life forever. But there there are some there are some interesting tidbits that I'd like to to go over. So how? I mean, how did you? What what was the point in time where you were like, okay, this is it? Like, I'm gonna I'm gonna take Steel seriously, and I'm gonna become like a metallurgist. I, I I'm interested in that process. How how did we get there? Yeah, that's a good question, because I never thought that engineering or science was really a possible career path for me. Uh, I did fine in school, but not amazing. And I would have thought of engineering or science as something for really smart people. Uh, And I never did particularly well in math in high school. I went to a very small high school. So we moved to a very small town in Nevada when I was eight years old. And uh, so I had one math teacher from eighth grade through my senior year. And uh, I I think, you know, he was a fine math teacher, but he just didn't connect with me. And I had a a hard time really figuring it out. Uh, And so I went to junior college because I, I wasn't a spectacular student. Maybe I could have gone to a better school, but I really didn't know what I was doing. Uh, So I went to junior college and I took a math class from Mr. Bowler, who was a lawyer who taught math on the side. And he was a really expressive, funny teacher. And so he uh, just everything he said made made sense to me. So he would teach a class on math and just everything connected. I could get to the exams and I just knew everything to do. I was getting straight A's on every every exam. And that really built my confidence. And so, it, you know, during that year, I spent a lot of time thinking about what it was I wanted to do as my career. And I said, hey, uh, like, I'm, I'm smart enough to do this. Like, I can do math. And if I can do math, then, you know, I, I, can, I can do what, whatever I, I want. And so I started to think about, about material science or engineering seriously as a career. Uh, so I transferred to University of Nevada in Reno. And uh, I, I started in material science and engineering, uh, and and I soon discovered I wasn't as smart as my as my Mr. Bowler math class had told me I was because the the students were very smart in the engineering program. Uh, all those kids had gone to big high schools with big AP programs. You know, they'd taken AP chemistry and physics, and I was definitely a step behind uh, those kids. And my new calculus math teacher at University of Nevada was not not nearly as expressive and entertaining and easy to understand. Uh, so, you know, I was thrown in the deep end again. You know, engineering is a tough, tough field to go into. So, you know, normally it's smart people that, that go into those those fields, not me. Uh, but I, I was able to bumble my way way through as an undergrad and uh, I was getting to my junior year or so, and then like, oh man, you know, graduation is not that far away. What am I going to do? Uh, and, you know, I thought about it and, you know, what I always wanted to do was develop new steels. And uh, to do that, you typically need a higher level degree, at least a master's, but a lot of times a PhD. Uh, so I started looking at grad schools. I emailed John Verhoeven, the, the professor who wrote that book on metallurgy for bladesmiths. Uh, I emailed a, a couple other professors I knew. Uh, one, George Krauss, he he edited the fifth edition of Tool Steels, uh, which was a fun book. So I emailed those guys, and they told me I should go to Colorado School of Mines, uh, which had a has a big steel research program. 
Uh, so I, I contacted the head of that steel research center and I said, hey, I love steel. Uh, I started talking to him about all my favorite things, you know, vanadium additions and grain size or whatever. And he said, I think you'd be great for your program. You should you should start studying for the GRE and make sure you get a good score. And I was like, what is the GRE? It's, oh, you know, I, I just, I, I knew nothing. I still know, know nothing. I took the ACT late. I didn't know what the GRE was going into grad school. Uh, so I studied a bunch for the GRE. Uh, my GPA wasn't that bad. I got a couple of C's at University of Nevada, but, but my overall GPA was pretty good. And so I was like, hey, I can go to grad school and, you know, I can go to this really nice school and do steel research. It'll be awesome. Uh, so I studied hard for that GRE. I got a good score. I got into the school. Uh, Colorado School of Mines, the Steel Research Center was amazing. Though the professors all know everything about steel. Uh, you know, th- there are some schools people go to and do steel research, but the professors, you know, they're good metallurgists, but they don't know steel specifics, and they can get away with little errors or bad logic on steel. But that was not possible in the Steel Research Center at Colorado School of Mines because they all know way more than I do uh, to this day. So. It was a really good program. We worked directly with steel companies all the time. We would present our research to them. Uh, and so that's when I got more interested in in automotive steel uh, because it's a really big area of research. Uh, tool steel is a much uh, more boring industry these days. There's not as much going on. Not nothing, but not as much as uh, steel for cars. So yeah, I went there for, for four or five years to get my PhD in metallurgical engineering uh, and that that was very challenging. So I said University of Nevada was hard and Colorado School of Mines was more difficult because they weren't students getting bachelor's degrees. They were now students getting PhDs. So they were even smarter than than those smart kids from the suburbs at University of Nevada. So, yeah, I had a really good time there. The research was really good. The classes were good. And so it was it was challenging and, and fun and that set me up for my career now. And, uh, you know, that's a big reason I had the confidence to start writing for knife steel nerds and to do my own experiments because I learned how to do all of that in, in grad school. So I wasn't nervous. I had done a lot of the things, you know, doing microscopy or doing toughness tests. So this was not not something that scared me. So this is just kind of an extension of, of what you had been doing before almost. Yeah. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, I mean, in as an undergrad, you do some lab classes and things. Uh, and I, I kept reading about knife steel on the side all I could. Um, unfortunately, in in material science school, they don't start every class by telling you about steel. You know, they want to talk about broader materials categories, of which steel is only a small part. So I try to pester professors into letting me do little projects. Uh, I remember I was trying to do different heat treatments to refine grain size on a stainless steel, and I had to develop an etchant. And the professor funded me to do this little project, which was mostly a failure, but I did manage to look at the grain size. Uh, So, you know, there are always professors that are willing to work with you. You know, if you show some interest, the professors are just as excited as you because they're just used to students looking at them with glazed eyes during every class. So, uh, you know, and it was the same getting into Colorado School of Mines. I called and told them how excited I was. Uh, I think I could have had a worse GPA and got a worse score on that GRE and I still would have got in because, you know, people, people like enthusiasm. You know that they do. That's absolutely true in, in any subject. And I, I would imagine in a, in, in a specificity like you're, you're speaking of, that's really, uh, that counts for a lot. I, I can only imagine how psyched they were to, to have somebody, um, truly be on their level with steel. 
Yeah, and I have no idea why anyone else gets into material science or metallurgy. I ask people and they're usually like, oh, I had a teacher here or, you know, I just randomly chose an engineering, you know, area or something. Uh, There's definitely other people that are interested in specific things. But yeah, so for me, I had this very specific path and interest. And when other people pick their career path, I have no idea how to help them. So, okay, so then in into the automotive industry, um, I don't know how much you can divulge of that, but I mean, do you, so do you work for like a specific, do you work for like GM or Honda or do you just sort of work for like a blanket organization that represents like steel in manufacturing for cars? Yeah, I do not work for a car company. I work for a steel company. I work for U.S. Steel Research. Uh, which is the research division of U.S. Steel, United States Steel. So the research uh, is in the Pittsburgh area. And uh, so we we develop new steels that will go into cars. So they, you know, they're always raising safety requirements and, and gas mileage requirements for cars. Uh, of course, just in general for consumers, they want to improve that every year. And to do that, they have to move up to better materials. And uh, cars are still largely made out of steel. Uh, you know, there's some other materials that go into them. Aluminum is a big one and plastics and, and you know, things that don't need any structural integrity. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe you look at a car and think they haven't changed that much, but the steels have, have gradually uh, steadily changed, especially over the last 20, 30 years. Uh, so every year, the car companies want stronger steels at the same level of ductility. So their strength and ductility. Uh, so ductility is like how far you can stretch something before it breaks. Uh, strength is how much force you need to break it. Uh, so uh, it's a- almost any time you increase the strength of something, uh, the ductility goes down. So just like in a knife, if you raise the hardness, usually the toughness goes down. It's a similar concept. Uh, so the car companies, they want the steel to get stronger, but to also be just as ductile. Now, at the same time, to make steel that is both stronger and more ductile uh, together, we need to change the composition. You know, We need to add more carbon or more other alloying elements. But the, the car companies also want us to keep the composition uh, the same or basically the same because the more alloy and carbon you add, the worse the weldability is. Uh, so we have a lot of demands that we're trying to meet at the same time. It's got to be stronger. It's got to be more ductile. It still has to be weldable. We have to be able to make it in our manufacturing facilities. Uh, and then there's other properties too. There's not just the the normal strength and ductility. There's other specific types of tests like uh, uh, there's hydrogen-induced delayed cracking for example. Uh, so there's just lots of these random properties and you're trying to get all of them to work all at the same time. Uh, and it, it's, it's pretty difficult sometimes, uh, but it, it's fun. So it's a lot different than, than tool steel, knife steels. They're a completely different set of materials. They're both iron based. They're both called steel. But the reason why I can work on car steel and then come home and do my hobby on knife steel is because they feel very different from each other. Okay, so for the for the automotive side, um, I mean, we're talking about steel and all. I mean, like what the hoods made out of, what the frames made out of. I mean, all the steels, or I mean, is there any specific? You're, you're you guys are just trying to solve this problem constantly for whatever is necessary for the company. Yeah, so a lot of the steels I design are, are for what's called the body in white. 
Uh, now, even though I make car steel, I am not an expert on cars. So hopefully I don't misspeak on anything. You know, they tell me like, oh, this will be for a B pillar or an A pillar. But um, I usually have to look up what that is. Uh, but so the body in white is kind of the structure uh, underneath the car. You know, so the the hood and the outer body is usually a relatively low carbon steel. Um, they might make it a little bit high strength, like to provide some dent resistance, you know. Uh, but a lot of what I'm designing is for the structure of the car. Okay. No, that, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I never even thought about the pillars and everything being completely different steel. But I, I suppose there's different stress um, on every part of the car in turns and everything. So that makes total sense, actually. Yeah, the okay. more advanced they've right. gotten, the more they, you know, way back in the day, it was all simple, mild steel, and, and they would adjust the structure to compensate for the properties of that material. Now, as they're trying to make the, the steel thinner and thinner to lightweight the car, then, you know, they end up making each component of the vehicle out of a different specific strength level of steel or a different type of steel. So it, it gets more and more advanced the more development goes on. Yeah, think about like this. You want the frame to be strong, but you don't want it to be in tough so that way it doesn't shatter. But then like you're think about a bumper and a hood. It, it has a bounce back factor, almost like a spring temper. It's not probably not spring tempered, but uh, the steel has, uh, uh, I would assume, bounce back properties, maybe referred to as ductile. I'm not exactly sure. But the car has uh, designed in crumple zones. Uh, so, you know, you have to have steel with very high toughness to be able to crumple and absorb the energy of a crash. So this is part of why people complain about cars being being so easy to to break these days is because when you run into something, your your car is designed to absorb it rather than you. Uh, so y- you can see videos. There's a good one where they crash a Chevy Bel Air into some kind of uh, 2009 Chevy and uh, the old Bel Air, which is just made of like really old thick steel, you think would do amazing, uh, but the the test dummy just gets destroyed in the car. Yeah, and the old the, Bel Air was tank. Yeah, so the 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 new car, the test dummy's fine. You know, the car absorbs the energy, the the airbags and everything do great. The old Bel Air, just the engine basically ends up in the lap of the the test dummy. So the 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 engineers, I think, know, know what they're doing. I know about the steel part. I assume the the automotive engineers know know that part. When what what decade are we speaking of that you that you started working for the automotive industry? I mean, are, are we driving cars now that that you had some form of input on? No, I started working professionally in 2015. Uh, so I don't know if there are any vehicles with. Well, there are vehicles with steel that I have worked on, so not ones that I I developed from scratch, probably. Uh, but you know, steels that that weren't uh, working as intended. Like you know, we we have high losses on a specific product, and I'm asked to to fix it so that you know, ninety or or ninety nine percent of the steel is is meeting the specification. It can be shipped to the customer rather than being scrapped or or rerun. Uh, you know, I'm given a project to to fix that so that we're not throwing away so much steel. So there's probably cars out there uh, with steel that I had a hand in or fixed or, you know, but I don't think there's any cars yet with steels that I designed from the ground up. Now, the important question is, if you've designed from the ground up, do you get to name it? Uh, no, usually the steels have very boring names. Uh, well, I guess our 
our marketing usually comes up with names, but then the the car companies, they don't care about your marketing name. They'll have some generic name for it, you know, 780TBCDC or whatever they want to call it. And you'll say, oh, we have our 780 trip product. Aren't you excited about that? And they're like, hold on, let me look at my sheet. You mean 780TBDC? You're like, yes. You know, oh. <laughs> Uh, I only said that as a joke because I, I like the joke about that I named Nitro V. Yeah. So that that's the main reason I use it. <laughs> that is that is that is Nick's go to uh, steel naming joke. Mm-hmm. Okay, so 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 automotive, um, and then we transfer into so you're you're doing this automotive stuff, and you're you're bored. You want to get back into knives. Somehow you're just like, I want this hobby to be more real. No, not not bored, that, boss. If you're listening, I'm having a great time at work. I enjoy my job very bored. much, but <laughs> I, I also love knife steel, and I want to work on knife steel. Right. So so how does that transition work? Because you said when when we started that you're working with a sort of confidential knife company now. Um, did you just how does that how does that connection work? Is there any automotive to knife or was it was knife always an underlying thing the whole time during the automotive process? Yeah, knife steel was always in the background. That's what I learned about from the beginning, you know, reading the book from John Verhoeven, for example, or reading that book on tool steels from George Krauss. I was reading all of those books. Uh, I joined various knife forums around 2001 or so. And, you know, I was discussing knife steel and knives uh, from then on. Uh, While I was in grad school, that slowed down some. I wasn't participating as much. Uh, I don't know if my interests were shifting a little bit at the time. Also, I wanted to focus on grad school. I was very busy then. Uh, And then after I was done with grad school, I started getting back into it some more, you know, chatting on the forums and talking about steel and heat treating and things. Uh, and, uh, I was like, well, I'm a metallurgist now, you know, I can write about these things a little more legitimately. So I, I wrote up a post or two, uh, just on blade forums in the shop talk section, which is used by knife makers. And I wrote up a couple things, uh, but on a forum you discuss things and then it goes back to page two or page three and then it's gone. Like I, I wrote an, a little mini article for blade forums about cryogenic processing and uh, then it ended up on page three a few days later, which is fine. Uh, but then a knife maker came on and asked questions about cryo. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I just barely wrote about this. Uh, so I thought, well, if I make a website, then it'll be more, a little bit more long term. It'll have kind of a, you know, a collection of different things that I write about. So if I write something about cryo, then it'll be there, you know, for whoever wants to look for it. And so that's where I started. And uh, originally, I was targeting mostly knife makers, and maybe I still do, uh, you know, writing about different parts of heat treating to knife makers. You know, this is how this works. These are the variables that change the end properties. You know, this is how you control your hardness or your toughness or your corrosion resistance. And that is what I primarily wrote. Um, and I didn't really have the equipment to do experiments at home. Uh, but there's some equipment I'm able to use at work. Uh, so, you know, my my dad did some studies with me where he forged out some steel and he treated it different ways. And we tested the toughness, for example. Uh, but then I started a Patreon and got some money through that. I was able to buy a heat treating furnace and some steel and a bandsaw and that kind of stuff and start doing more experiments. So originally it was just writing articles, you know, like this is how steel works. 
uh, then it was doing more experiments and it grew a little more. Uh, and, you know, a, a lot of knife enthusiasts and buyers also read the site. So, you know, I'll write articles targeted at them a little more. Uh, you know, it, it's a struggle because I'm trying to write about very technical things to a lay audience and mostly failing. Uh, so, you know, some people are like, oh, these articles, you know, they're so great. I love them. I'm learning so much. And then then I get the random person that says, I tried to read this. I didn't get any of it. And I was like, oh, man, because, you know, all I want to do is for people to understand. But it it's so hard to write things in a in a way that's both technical and covers all the bases and also is easy to understand. So I'm doing my best. I mean, I can, I can understand the, uh, I I'm able to keep up as best as I can. You're doing a great, great job of explaining, but I can, I can see why people might get a little overwhelmed by the techno technological aspect uh, of, of the subject. Um, but I mean, great call, just making a website. That's, that's, then you're always on page one. That's, you're always, you're always there, easy to find. Yeah, I so, think I think websites and blogs are kind of an outdated concept now. But you know, I'm getting older, so <laughs> just got to just got to evolve with the times. Yeah, you know, That's, I'm, I'm, you know social media has been been great at that. Yeah, I'm also working on a book, so I'm I'm going back in time slowly. I'll switch to clay tablets oh, wow. next. Okay, yeah, definitely. Inscribing on slate is is you know always good. I see it in the graveyards all the time. It mm-hmm. seems to last for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the acid rain it takes a while. Hmm. So working working with you're saying okay. So you're saying you're writing these articles. They're for different different sects of the same community. Mm-hmm. Um, but working with production companies, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, a lot of what I'm doing is independent. You know, I'm I'm not not necessarily sponsored by a steel company or or anything. Uh, I have gotten donations, uh, both from my readers through Patreon, but also different steel suppliers will donate things to me. You can see that on Instagram. I'll say, you know, oh, I just got some of the new M398 steel from from Alpha Knife Supply, for example, or you know, I just got in some some Rex 121 from Niagara. Uh, so I, I have gotten some some good support from some of those companies. Uh, only one or two of the studies I've done have really been commissioned by them. Uh, you know, some things are expensive to do or or a company's interested in it. And of course, they they hire me and say, you know, be unbiased. Just let us know what the result is. Uh, but I always say in the article, you know, I got this deal donated from this company and this deal donated from this company. So if you, if you think I have a, a bias, then, uh, you know, let me know. I'll, I'll, I'll check my biases and see how I'm doing. Uh, and, and occasionally that comes back to bite me. Uh, I won't name names, but there, there is a steel supplier that, that uh, kind of commissioned and designed a little bit their own steel and they sent me some of it. And I tested it and I said, it's not any different really than this other available steel. And uh, they they were not that happy with me. So. Yeah, I'd like to actually talk to you about I'd like to I'd like to talk to you about that later. OK. <laughs> uh, so but I, off, I've, off the recording. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I've tried to expand uh, what I'm doing with production companies a little bit. Uh, I've worked more and more with them trying to do consulting projects on the side. Uh, I'm, I'm also in talks with uh, 
a supplier on one knife steel project and a knife steel company on another where I'm trying to get a steel, you know, a couple different steels of my design produced uh, where, you know, I want to make new and exciting properties and aren't available in the knife steel industry right now. So those, those seem to be moving forwards kind of slowly sometimes, uh, but I'm really excited about that. So designing knife steels was really one of my big dreams from the beginning, you know, as a teen talking to the crucible metallurgists about S30V or whatever the new exciting steel was at the time. You know, I always wanted to make something new and cool with better properties than what was available before. So hopefully we'll be able to make announcements on that in the future. Yeah, it takes a lot of money to roll out to, to do a custom roll. So, okay, so all the tests are, are totally, totally non-biased. You're not sponsored by like Microtech or Spyderco or anybody. You're, you're 100% steel 1,000% of the time. So it's really... Who was ever manufacturing it is is almost second to how the steel performs. Yeah, I'm a fan of all the steel companies. You know, there's some I like more than others. I've had good interactions with Crucible metallurgists in the past. Uh, they had a bankruptcy in 2009, so a lot of those research metallurgists are working at other companies now, or some of them are approaching retirement probably. Uh, so I, I've always had a soft spot in my heart for Crucible. You know, they came out with S30V around 2001, and that was really exciting to me at the time. Uh, but, you know, if a cool new steel comes out from Udahome or Bowler or Carpenter, then I, I want to know about it. So I'm excited about it all. Yeah, I just wish Carpenter's supply chain was a bit better. Yeah, everyone complains about that. Even the suppliers that that have good relationships with Carpenter. They, they just don't seem to be on the ball with that. It's kind yeah, of disappointing. I'm pretty familiar with that. <laughs> so Carpenter, get your act together. Yeah, I'm sure they're listening. Mm-hmm. They're, they're probably, they're, they're here. Yeah, um, Mr. Carpenter, he's okay. he's listening right now. <laughs> it's, that's it. Um, okay, so then the, the steel tests. Okay, that's mm-hmm. the next... That's the next thing. So then you're you're here doing these tests. Um, like how much like time, you know, money, you know, how do you figure out what tests to do? Is it just is it driven by like consumer interests or steel people interests? Like who how do you figure out how to do these tests and what tests to do? Yeah, that's a good question. A lot of it is driven by my interests, but there are are other people that have input. So you know, I've done a lot of toughness testing the past couple of years, and uh, I I announced on Blade Forums, like, I'm doing toughness testing now. If you have the capability of heat treating or grinding specimens, then make them and I'll test them. And I've even been criticized by one or two people for doing that. Like, oh, if you were a real scientist, then you would just make them all yourself. Uh, but, you know, real science can be done by normal people. And, uh, you know, this is a community effort. So I can only do so much. And the more people want to contribute, the more we will all learn together. So, you know, when someone says, oh, I really want to see how tough uh, this particular steel is, you know, how tough is 3V or uh, can can Z-Tough beat out the toughness of 3V or something, then, you know, let's do it. And uh, so, you know, I test the toughness and what they're interested in is what I test. Uh, now, also on my Patreon, I occasionally do a poll like, you know, oh, I'm debating between working on this project next or this project. You know, which one uh, are you guys most interested in? And and they'll do it. But, you know, I also turn down things. You know, people say, oh, there's this debate about if 204P can cut longer than 20 CV or whatever their debate is. And 
like, you know, it's really not that interesting. They're probably going to be about the same, you know, I've, I've got limited amount of time. So, uh, if we get around to that in the future, then sure, we'll see how it does. But, you know, I, I can't do everything. So, so things are filtered through me. If I think it's just not worth doing, then I probably won't do it. I I mean, I, I have to ask just because, uh, I, I sell knives constantly. It's what, what I do in my day job. And I'm, I'm just pulling my hair out over people asking me obnoxious questions about, about knife steel. Do, do you find that people just don't give up sometimes uh, with their, with their line of questioning, thinking that it's like the end all be all, and you're trying to be more technical about it? Oh, of course. I mean, even when I investigate something, uh, you know, like one of the boring questions, I say, okay, well, I have the resources to do this. I'll just do it. And I look into something and I see no difference. Or, you know, somebody says this steel way out cuts this other one. I test them and it's the reverse. Then, you know, normally they get in the comments and say, well, you did it wrong. You know, you're supposed to heat treat it to 62 Rockwell and you only heat treat it to 61 Rockwell. So when you go and test it to 62 Rockwell, then come back and let us know how it goes. You know, so uh, I, I change some people's minds and those that have their sacred cows, they'll just keep holding on to them. Okay. Yeah, that's that's probably a good way of looking at it. I, I can't imagine. Uh, I, I have some idea, but I can't imagine someone someone in your profession doing what you do on social media. Uh, the trolls must be intense at points to, to where people just don't want to listen to like the, the scientific fact that you're providing them uh, that must just drive you insane. I'm sure. Yeah, I'd say it's not too bad, but it definitely happens. Sometimes it comes in waves. Sometimes I'm amazed. Like when when I was a teenager or or a young adult and, uh, you know, I got a chance to talk to a crucible metallurgist or John Verhoeven, I just worshiped them like they knew everything and could say nothing that was wrong. Uh, And then sometimes people talk to me like I don't know what I'm talking about, you know, like they know everything and if only i would listen to them then i could learn something and sure some sometimes people have some some things to teach me but you know i i've been doing this for a while and when they talk to me like i'm the one that doesn't understand then it, it it's a little bit infuriating sometimes yeah i can imagine cuz certainly it you obviously have a a good idea of of what you're doing here um okay so i i just have a, i have a basic question then so you're doing these you're doing these steel tests and they're they're well done and they're analytical and you know, they're zero biases. But my question is, so when a company, any knife company buys the steels that you're testing, I mean, is there, you know what I'm saying? Is there like a translation between the tests you're doing and then like a finished product? Like if I go buy like a paramilitary two with whatever, I don't even keep up with that stuff, whatever steel is on there, you know what I'm saying? Is that test comparable to how they treat the steel? Like, are your tests based on the same treatment or your test based off of how you know the steel should be heat treated? Yeah, there's a lot of, of ground to cover here. And I think I'm going to forget about 100 things. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's the the engineering of the final knife. And that knife, the the design and engineering of it has has a thousand different components to it. You know, there's there's the edge geometry that they're they're selecting. There's the shape of the blade uh, that is hopefully designed for its intended application. You know the design of the tip. You know how heavy the tip is going to be, uh, and and so that that all goes into it. The finish that they're going to use on on the knife, and then the steel is just one part of that. So you pick a steel, 
to some extent based on what the market wants, uh, to some extent based on the performance that it'll provide for the given knife. Uh, and then, of course, you have to heat treat that steel. And uh, there are differences in heat treating between industry and knife makers. So a lot of my content is geared at custom knife makers. Uh, I don't do heat treatment studies specifically for knife companies usually because I just don't have the equipment. Uh, you know, you're talking about very large vacuum furnaces usually where a knife maker will have a small furnace and, you know, they'll wrap the steel in foil and then plate quench it or air quench it or with a low alloy steel, they'll they'll oil quench it. And so those are usually the level of studies I'm doing. Uh, but surprisingly, when when a metallurgist at a steel company is developing a new steel and selling it to industry, they'll do small-time laboratory tests just like what I do and then try to translate those to the production companies. Uh, so can research I'm doing translate to the knife companies? Yes. Uh, but some people put too much emphasis on the steel itself or even the heat treatment. So a common thing will be, you know, the heat treatment matters more than the steel. And that is kind of true, uh, but also the design of the knife and the edge geometry matters way more than either the heat treatment or the steel. And ideally, you want all three to be optimized for for the knife. Because, uh, you know, you can have a heavy knife that doesn't cut very well, and it doesn't matter if it has the latest Uber steel with the uh, super heat treatment lost from the ages that we've never figured out again. And it's still going to cut badly. Uh, so, you know, and and sometimes you see this on, on YouTube, um, people doing tests between different knives uh, and then calling it a test between steels. And uh, I, I don't like to criticize the YouTube uh, testers. I think those tests are valid and fun and, and can teach us things. But sometimes what they think they're testing is not the same as what they are testing. So, you know, you might see a, a video that's S30V versus XHP, but they're they're comparing like a buck knife to a Benchmade knife with completely different edge geometries. And uh, you're just not comparing the steels, you're comparing the knives. And so you might learn something about the steels from that, but it could just be that one knife has a much thinner edge geometry and it's going to cut a lot better and a lot longer than the other uh, even if one has a, a steel that should last longer if it had identical edge geometry. So uh, I think I'm losing track of what the original question was now. Uh, but, you know, there that's that's OK. I really like that answer because it, it basically says that no matter who or what you're arguing, it's totally subjective. And that's usually where I find myself in things. So that that's that's great. And I, I, I approve of the everything matters and, and you can't just point one thing and choose your answer. It's just not how it works. Yeah, it's actually pretty, it's pretty funny today. I actually got an email about edge geometry and edge tension. And that, no one really asked Life Maker for information like that. It's like, oh, how do I sharpen your knives so they hold a better edge if I'd like to? It's I used to make kitchen knives like four years ago. And I had someone message say, hey, I have your kitchen knife. I use it all the time, but I really like don't want to keep sharpening it. Uh, as it, as the as the knife gets let uh, narrower, and uh, he's like, "What well, can I sharpen at a different angle?" I was like, "Look, like I, sh- I like to do twenty degrees. If you go any thicker, it'll hold the edge for a little longer, but it won't cut as well. If you go thinner, and vice versa." And then I introduced uh, to uh, what a strop was to this guy. Uh, I was like, "You don't really have to sharpen it; just get a strop." And he didn't even know about it. But just funny, he's talking about uh, geometry being important. 
And today we're getting an email about that because uh, usually no one really asks knife makers what's better for the edge, how to maintain it properly, uh, how do I resharpen it. Usually I, I sharpen everything with a wicked edge to 20 degrees so people could resharpen my products easily uh, instead of reprofiling them, which, yeah, I used to do it on the grinder back in the day, but that never really made sense to me because if anyone actually tries to resharpen it, they're never going to match an angle that I did by hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of end users are afraid of changing that angle. Uh, so it does make sense to pick one that will be relatively easy for them to maintain uh, or to pick one that fits the knife. Uh, you know, so if it's supposed to be a thin slicer, you might do a 15 degree per side sharpening or so. Uh, you know, and a lot of people freehanding, you know, they're taught like, oh, you know, put a marker on there, mark up the edge and then see if you're removing the whole thing so you can maintain the angle. Uh, so, you know, it, it, you have to think about the end consumer and it can be frustrating to the knife maker when when you put all this work into a knife, you know, designing it to cut and to cut well and be easy to sharpen. And then they come back three years later and they're like, hey, could you sharpen my knife for me? And you're like, yeah, sure. And you look at the knife and it's obvious it has not been sharpened since it left your shop. Uh, so, you know, there you have to design knives for for the consumer and you don't always know who that consumer is going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why about four years ago I switched to a wicked edge and everything. I'll, I'll sharpen it on the grinder uh, to zero, but I'll sharpen that like a freehand 25 degree and then just jump on the wicked edge so that way I'm not spending the whole time there and, and then adjust or reprofile it to a 20 uh, and finish it up instead of going through all the grits from a 12th out edge down to uh, a zero essentially to a cutting edge with the wicked edge which I used to do in the beginning but I used to go through stone like the diamond plates as you know they're not cheap uh, like crazy and so I was like nah I gotta sharpen these first on the grinder yeah one, one, of my, one of my more controversial articles is about sharpening with a grinder oh, there, there was a lot of debate a lot of knife makers were very upset with me oh. no yeah you, you'd you'd uh uh, I know you're probably going to be you're probably uh, talking about using the finer belts on the grinder heats up the micro edge stuff like that. Yeah, so it was all about whether or not uh, a grinder over tempers your edge, but there there was a lot of a, a lot of talking past each other. You know, there were a lot of knife makers that were defensive because a lot of knife makers will put the final edge on with a grinder. Uh, so, so my article covered the the small number of studies where they've looked at at the hardness of, of edges after grinding on a, on a, well, sharpening on a grinder. Uh, there was a, an edge retention test that, that some undergrad students did where they compared sharpening on a stone versus, uh, on a grinder. There was, uh, some statements from the catcher company. There was uh, a test done by global knife company where they compared stones versus, uh, grinders. So I, you know, I put all that up. I, I wasn't that interested in writing about it really, but, uh, a few people asked me about it and I looked into it and I'm like, well, there's enough, uh, you know, research here to report on it at least. Uh, but yeah, people were very upset that I said that sharpening on a grinder could lead to softening at the edge. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the arguments, there, there were two major arguments against the article. One was that uh, I've never had a complaint from a customer. Uh, now, uh, I don't know if you would have a complaint from a customer if you slightly softened the edge by over-tempering it. You know, were they were they cutting, you know, doing side-by-side cutting tests between your knife and, and other knives? I think 
without doing that, you may not notice a difference. Now, another thing is if you sharpen the knife several times, then you'll get rid of that softened portion of the edge and then it will no longer be an issue. Uh, it's relatively common in production knife buyers to say, you know, oh, you got to sharpen a knife a few times before you really know how it's going to perform. Uh, the the other major argument uh, against the article or the research was that uh, uh, my knives come off really sharp off the grinder. Uh, now, I never said that it wasn't going to be sharp. I said it was going to be over-tempered. So, you know, if you over-temper the edge, it's a few points Rockwell softer than the bulk uh, knife. So it'll cut a little bit less long. Uh, there's a chance you really overheat it, and then it would also be brittle. Uh, but you you would probably know if you did that, though it maybe not. Uh, so, but you can definitely get it soft, uh, you know, softer while also making it very sharp. So, uh, I guess I didn't. Uh, I know, I know exactly what you mean. Uh, I've seen many knife makers uh, sharpen their knives on a grinder. I think the thing at a hundred percent feed is about thirty four hundred RPMs, which is fine if you're really quick. You could still sharpen it out, resting up the edge. If you have a fresh belt, like I was just using, oh, like I use a used belt because it's finer. I'm like, yeah, but that builds up heat. Uh, I thought about it back in the day. I, I spoke to Jeremiah a little bit about this before we before this episode. Uh, to what were you saying? Knife makers get defensive. A lot of knife makers like to believe they make the best knives in the world. I like to always say straight up, you want best knife. You want a, a great knife? Don't buy my knife. I, I make a collector piece. Like it's a good knife, but like you buy a knife for 120 bucks, that'll be way better for everyday use. Uh, ideally, I try to grind my knives carefully to not ruin the heat treat, but. I, I'd admittedly say nine out of 10 of my knives, heat tree is great. That 10th one, maybe the temper is a little not perfect because um, if I'm using ABL, uh, the temper is 325 degrees. It's a pretty low temper. When I'm grinding it, that's even before you get a straw, you get a bronze color at about 420. Uh, so you, we all knife makers, we grind and we go, oh crap, it's bronze, temper is a little ruined. Steels like ABL, sometimes you could, you could, temper the steel out without even seeing any bronze marks and you think it's all good but you probably drop the point or two and you don't even know it and i'll admit like yeah that happens but at the end i'm making the custom knife and i i'm doing the best i can but admittedly one out of ten could be a, a few points lower just because uh you stay there too long or it's just a low tempering steel yeah and it it becomes challenging sometimes you know they'll they'll say well such and such master legendary knife maker sharpens his knives that way are you saying you don't he doesn't know how to sharpen knives and like well i i don't know (laughs) i mean essentially i i like that it's it's basically your your perspective is taking the like the emotional characteristics of the argument out of it and just looking at at the pure facts i can appreciate that which is just like look whatever the story is it has to be based on like a scientific test um that that's just it like doesn't matter what it is that that i appreciate that um that being said these tests what what interests you the most in the test so you're saying before you were kind of like well i'm not interested in writing about this or testing this what interests you most about the the test you do or what what do you want to test in the steels well i am a metallurgist so you know in the end this steel the metallurgy the heat treating is the part that interests me the most uh but uh, one thing I've had to do for knife steel nerds is to learn a lot more about the overall knife itself. Uh, now, it's not that I was not interested in that before, but you know, I was trained for a decade in in metallurgy before starting knife steel nerds, and so I knew metallurgy. You know, 
uh, and I, I knew lots of things that knife makers would say about knife construction or edge geometry, uh, but I had to learn a lot more about that. You know, like I said, the edge geometry matters more than your steel choice. Uh, so if you're going to ignore those elements of the knife, then you're going to be really short-sighted. You know, it, somebody does a test comparing a a high edge retention steel to a low edge retention steel, and the low edge retention steel does better, and you're just baffled as to why that would be because you don't know how the overall knife works. So I have uh, expanded my horizons and and been interested in more things. You know, how does sharpness work? Uh, you know, how does cutting ability work? What's the difference between sharpness and cutting ability? How does toughness testing of steel translate to chipping resistance in a knife edge? Uh, what controls uh, a, a knife flexing or bending? Or, you know, what makes one knife bend 90 degrees and another one snap? You know, these are all questions that are are somewhat related to the steel that's in it, but it's also an overall, you know, the engineering of the overall knife. Uh, so I've expanded a lot more into that. Uh, you know, you just can't ignore it. You have to learn about it to be able to talk about knives and, and knife steel. Uh, so I'd say the the different microstructures, the different characteristics of steel, how to optimize steel properties with heat treatment, those are my original passions. That's Those are my biggest interests. Uh, but uh, I've had to expand my interests and in what I, I learn uh, during uh, working on the website. And that it's really been a selfish endeavor. You know, I wanted to learn more about knife steel, more about how knives work. And so I started doing research, you know, reading papers and doing my own experiments. And so that's very rewarding. Okay. No, I, I, I can appreciate that. You, you seem to be a person who's eager for more information on a specific topic. And that, that has to be, that has to be totally respected. Um, what okay? What about what about Damascus? Do you do you test Damascus? Do you yeah, do? I, I, do you I, I got into that because I was saying I was I was trying to say that. Look at your website now; it's really well put together. Did a great job on it. Uh, but I, I haven't seen here like how much Damascus testing have you done? Because ironically enough, I'm actually working on two knives with some of your father's steel. Uh, and there's always the question of the, the, a lot of the Damascus stainless Damascuses are alloyed with 300 stainless steels. Uh, have you done much testing with Damascuses that use 300 uh, series stainlesses in it? Uh, only a little bit. Uh, so I have two primary articles about Damascus, maybe three. Uh, one is called like Five Myths About Damascus Steel. That talks about both Woots and pattern welded Damascus. Uh, I have an article on the history of powder metals in Damascus. Uh, like using powder nickel or powder 1084 or 15 and 20 in Damascus. Oh, Damascuses. Yeah, so that that was a fun article to do. I was able to interview a lot of Damascus makers uh, about the history of pattern development and Damascus development. So that that's kind of its own world unto itself. Uh, so one big test that we did, uh, me and my dad we went to Spiderco and we were able to use their Catra tester. So this was, oh, I don't know when, maybe 2010 or 2012. So my dad made uh, three knives, one in 154 CM, one in AEBL, and one was a 50-50 mix of 154 and AEBL. And, so it was uh, a performance stainless. There was no, he, there was no uh, 300 series in it. He just went with the right. straight more. Not more synthetic. 
Right. So the the goal was to see if there is a Damascus cutting effect, which is something which has been claimed, you know, back to the 70s with Bill Moran is that uh, a softer steel like or a material like nickel or a low carbon steel or a 302 uh, would wear away more quickly uh, than making sort of a serrated edge, which would cut longer. And 154CM is much more wear resistant than AEBL. So it would expect uh, we would expect the ABL to wear faster. Uh, so we tested that the 154 cm uh, cut a lot longer than the AEBL, and the 5050 mix between the two steels was basically right in between the two. Uh, so we didn't see a Damascus cutting effect. Uh, it's basically just you know a rule of mixtures, meaning you know if you've got 75 percent 154 cm, then it'll cut better than a 5050 mix between the two because the 154 uh, cuts longer in a, a wear uh, slicing test like that. Uh, so if you mix 302 into uh, a stainless uh, with Damascus, then it will uh, lower the edge retention of the steel somewhat. Now, normally, there's not that much 302 or 304 in a stainless steel, you know, something like 10% or so, uh, but it will change the properties of the steel. So uh, Dama Steel likes to advertise that that their steel doesn't contain any uh, softer steel in it. So they use a mix of RWL 34 and PMC 27, which are sort of similar to ABL and CPM 154. Uh, but most of the major Damascus producers uh, that I'm aware of do have performance versions of steel. Uh, so, you know, with my father's steel, people prefer the the 302 alloyed steel. When he made performance versions, they didn't they didn't buy it because it w- was a little more expensive and didn't etch as well. So they yeah, used- the, the, it was a lot more. Um, it, it's a lot more mute because the 304 does it stays a nice shiny silver, right? Um, so, yeah, but now it's it's gaining more popularity now as more guys are making their own steels. Like the the stainless Damascus I make performance is the same mix your father made. Mm-hmm. Uh, curious, did you guys do individually test this? Well, into the Damascus layout under the same heat treat, were you guys able to test the hardness of both of the steels within the same homogenous mix? I guess. Yeah, it's not usually a good idea to. Well, a hardness test of Damascus only tells you so much, especially when there's a softer material in the mix, uh, because the hardness will read lower just because of the composite nature of the material. So if you have an AEBL 302 mix, for example, you want to heat treat for the AEBL. uh, And then, you know, through experience, you can see, okay, it's going to read about this on the Rockwell scale, even though that may or may not represent uh, the the hardness of the the ABL, if you know what I mean. Yeah, but I'm referring to so the performance that I make is the same ABL 154 mix. Uh-huh. Uh, they have very similar heat treats, so I'm assuming it's probably within the point or so. Yeah, but I was curious if you guys did testing on the on the hardness of both of the steels within the same heat treat. Uh, in the case of our Catra edge retention test, or just generally. Uh, and generally, in the case of like uh, the, your dad's billet that had that contained just 154 cm and ABL, did you guys try to Rockwell test individual steels within the billet to see if they Rockwell similar? Oh yeah, so I mean that there's a reason why those mixes are used uh, because the the steels do heat treat relatively similarly, like you said, 
and uh, they have a contrast difference when you etch them with hydrochloric uh, or a couple other etchants. Muriatic. Yeah. Uh, well, muriatic is hydrochloric acid. Uh, oh, sick. I never knew that. So the the high high molly in the 154 cm causes it to be brighter. Oh, it doesn't etch as dark as the ABL in in a hydrochloric acid. Uh, so that's why they are used. In the case of the Catra experiment, we of course measured the Rockwell on on all three knives: the 154, the ABL, and and the mixture. Um, I don't remember what those hardness values were. They they were very close. Like one was 60 and one was 61 or something. Yeah, okay. I assume they would be in about a, within the point or so mm-hmm. uh, within the steel. Yeah, was, 154 like, does heat treat a little bit harder usually. Yeah, because I got some knives in the bench right now. One in the performance that I made for a personal carry, and then I actually have some steel from your father that I bought about seven or so years ago that has mm-hmm. been lying around. Yeah, I think making stainless Damascus has been growing a little bit. Uh, you know, more and more people are learning how to do it. Uh, for a long time, you know, it was my dad and Mike Norris and Damasteel, and that seemed to be about it. Either there wasn't interest or they couldn't figure out how to make it. I mean, historically, a lot of Damascus makers use carbon steels because they're forging bladesmiths using carbon steels. So uh, there wasn't that much drive to make stainless, and they didn't know how to make it. But I think uh, the knowledge is slowly growing. Mm-hmm. Definitely is There's definitely guys out there. I'm not even the forger, and I've I've done forging as a hobby. It makes me no money, but um, I I do forge the masks because I like it, and it's just awesome to say. I haven't made really any builds in it, but I do have a few builds that I've made in both titanium Damascuses and performance stainless Damascuses. Uh, just nice to say as a fuller maker uh, will be a sole authorship piece to where mm-hmm. I made everything in here down to the steel, but the bearings essentially is what guys say. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I like Damascus. That was one of my early interests. You know, when I first got on the on the different forums, I'd usually just go and do a search for Damascus and see what people were talking about uh, before I expanded into other things. So, you know, the history of Damascus and, and pattern development, how different patterns are made, uh, you know, how stainless Damascus is made versus carbon steel Damascus. Those are all interesting subjects to me. So that's part of what was fun about doing that history article on powder Damascus is I was able to call a lot of guys that were very influential in Damascus in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. So that was that was a lot of fun connecting with more of those guys. Do you keep contact with any of them now or, or do you work closely still with, with your dad at all or is there any connection there? Uh, well, there is a strong connection with my father. I call him, uh, you know, most days, probably. Uh, we don't always talk about steel, but we do talk about steel a lot. Um, he also asks me how my kids are doing and how my job's doing. And, you know, I tell him about how I went to the grocery store and other exciting topics like that. Uh, but, you know, me and my dad talk a lot. And, you know, I tell him what's going on with Knife Steel Nerds and different experiments that that I'm doing and so, yeah, me and my dad are tight and, you know, I got to know a lot of knife makers over the years and, and a lot of people know my father. So calling up all of those knife makers and Damascus makers about, about what happened in, uh, back in the day was not that difficult. Uh, so, you know, I just cold called most of them and said, you know, hi, I'm Laren. And they either said, oh, I remember you, or they said, who are you? And I told them who my dad is and what I was working on. And 
So it, yeah, it wasn't that difficult. I, I've had good luck in the past just calling knife makers, uh, you know, some of, of some fame and some lesser known, but uh, yeah, working with knife makers has always been rewarding. Uh, you know, going to knife shows was always fun to get to know the different knife makers. You know, they come in all different personality types. Uh, you know, there's like cowboy type guys that, you know, they wear the hat and, and the boots and they, you know, talk about how this knife will be good for a cowboy or whatever. And uh, then there's, you know, more serious uh, self-defense guys. Uh, you know, they usually work out and got the muscles to go with their the knives that they sell. Uh, and, and, you know, forging bladesmiths, they, they have their own style. Some of those are also the cowboy guys. And, uh, so, you know, you get to, you get to know knife makers and, uh, yeah, and I, I've had really good experiences with knife makers in general, not too many negative ones. Uh, you know, one experience I always remember, uh, as we were going to the Eugene, Oregon show and, uh, we went there with Bill Rupel, who is a Texas, uh, slip joint maker, uh, he's very well known, uh, very famous, uh, known for teaching a lot of guys slip joints. Uh, I had no idea who he was, uh, but uh, I went on a trip with him up to Eugene, Oregon. So I guess Bill doesn't like to fly because he was driving all the way from from Texas. So he came in his, his fancy new truck and picked us up in the middle of nowhere in Nevada, where I grew up. And uh, we all got in the truck the next morning and we started driving out of town and we got like a mile out of town. And I was getting really carsick, though I haven't hardly even been carsick before. This, that was like the first and only time. And so I'm in this fancy Ford F-250 or whatever it was, and I'm feeling real bad. And I'm like, Bill, you got to pull over right now. So he pulls over and I get out and I'm just like puking all over the ground. And, you know, we're like a mile out of town. And so you know, Bill's got to be thinking like, what, what have I done? <laughs> you know, so... Uh, I think I took some Dramamine and we, we continued the trip, but, uh, Bill's a really cool guy. You know, to me, he was just, uh, the guy we were traveling with to the Eugene show. I didn't realize he was a legendary knife maker, really. Uh, you know, we listened to a lot of country music since he's from Texas. We talked about the peanut farms. Uh, I bought some jazz CDs and those, those drove him crazy on the trip. Uh, and, uh, he gave me a, a slip joint folder that he made uh, at, at the end of the trip. And of course his knives were worth a lot then and even more now. Uh, and a, a lot of the knives that I own were given to me by, by knife makers uh, because, you know, there's a lot of a very giving uh, kind knife makers. And uh, so, yeah, the, the trip with Bill Rupel is just one example of, of the good experiences I've had with, with knife makers and, and knife companies, you know, uh, Sal Glesser uh, always had really good experiences with, of course, the, the owner of, of Spiderco and his son, Eric, you know, they've given me knives. Uh, they let us do those catcher tests on the Damascus steel. I visited them a couple times. Uh, oh, I should mention Colorado school of mines is in golden Colorado, uh, where they make Spiderco knives and, uh, Coors. So, uh, I was able to, to go to Spiderco a handful of times while I was there uh, and so, yeah, in general, I've had really good experiences with knife makers. So oh, I can mm. tell you some negative stories too, if you want, but there's not, not nearly as many of those. <laughs> no, um, those aren't, those aren't as, as flattering. Mm-hmm. Before we take a deep dive into your website, um, so have you done any steel, I mean, testing on Chinese steels and their hardnesses and their honesty behind it? 
not really. I don't do that many tests of final production knives unless there's something specific I want to look at. You know, I don't really review knives or give recommendations for specific knives to purchase. Uh, and I, I, I really like to control my variables. So testing a, a finished knife, you know, takes away all of those choices from me. You know, I, I don't control how they heat treat things or what the edge geometry is or anything. Uh, I know there are some people that have been trying to test the composition of, of different, uh, knives, particularly imported ones to see if, if the steel is what they claim it is. Uh, they've yeah, mostly I'm been using the radiology test. Yeah, they, they've been mostly using a technology called XRF. Uh, I forget what that stands for. X-ray fluorescence, I think. Uh, so there's these little uh, PMI guns, uh, like metal identification, or and I, yeah, there's a local scrapyard when I have like a because I have a like like I mentioned, I was an NJ steel bear for a while, so I have a lot of like random steels. Uh, so once in a while, I, I find this pile of steel. I'm like, ah, oh, this seems like the right thing I need. But I don't know what it is to heat treat it. So go to local, a lot of scrapyards usually have those guns. Yeah. I bring it over. I'll test them. I'll look at the charts and figure it out. I actually just did that because I was uh, trying to make a steel stamp today. And I had a bar and I was like, I don't know what this is, but I think it's W1. And I took it over and like, I'm like, oh, yeah, it looks like W1. So kind of worked yeah. out. Heat treated it. You should be a little bit careful with that. Uh, because the XRF guns, they don't have perfect accuracy. You know, any test has some... Uh, some variation within it and xrf guns are not the very best method for measuring composition uh, particularly when they're checking to see if something's actually d2 uh, because the xrf guns do not measure carbon content uh, and so you know if it had one and a half carbon in it then it would be d2 no question most likely Uh, but you know sometimes they're they're testing something and it's 13 or 14 chromium when they're expecting 11 and a half or 12. And I'm not sure if that's enough evidence to say it's definitely not D2. I'd probably want a more reliable composition measurement before I was really sure that they were advertising it as D2, but it wasn't. Uh, so uh, th- those kind of tests can be fun. It can be be exciting to do the gotcha game. You know, you think you're getting this good knife, but it's not, and it's false advertising. But uh, I would wait for for more reliable measurements before I was ready to throw away a knife. No, no, I, I mean for me, it's I've used about the same five steels over the last ten years, so it gives me yeah. an idea which five I'm dealing with at that moment from the from the scrap pile. Yeah, for for your uses, it it's perfect. Yeah, it's not like oh, which out of a hundred steels, what is this? It's one of these five, and I'll usually I can figure it out if they test it because it's literally two minutes away from me. Yeah, I wish I had one. Oh, they're they're expensive. They look small, like they'd be cheap, but no, they are not cheap. No, it's, it's a piece of high tech equipment. <laughs> yeah, but I went down there. I was, someone told me I was like, every scrapyard should have one. So I just drove down there. I was like, hey, do you have this thing? Can you test this? He's like, oh, sure, no problem. Yeah. And then there, and I try to bring him titanium. And the guy's like, oh, that's crazy exotic. I'm like, oh, really? I have like buckets full of this stuff. Yeah. This is all just all just titanium, my guy. <laughs> um. So you, um, okay. So you, you have a Patreon, you have a website, mm-hmm. you have Instagram, mm-hmm. um, you have all these, all these sources of, of, of material that, that you regularly write on. It sounds like, I mean, how, how often do you publish new articles on your website? Yeah. For a long time I was doing every week, 
Uh, I did that for a couple years. I decided that that wasn't sustainable. I wasn't really burnt out, but I was worried if I kept going at that rate that I would be burnt out. And uh, I was running into times occasionally when like, I don't know what I'm going to write about this week. So I just got to find something and write about it. And so to make sure that my quality wouldn't slip and I wouldn't burn out, I switched to, uh, I'm basically doing every other week, sometimes twice a month. So there's definitely regular articles coming out. Um, I just, I was driving myself crazy having a very strict schedule, which I think wasn't that great of an idea. And people don't need 3000 more words about knife steel every single week. So every other week is, is working pretty well. Now, after, after all your testing and, uh, what would you, what, what would you say is your favorite? What would you say is the best all around steel? And what would you say is your favorite all around steel? Yeah, that's a really hard question because, of course, we know that everything is a trade-off. You know, there's no no perfect steel. And well, in my question, where I'm talking ED for everyday carry, what are you like? Not yeah, oh, it's the toughest, strongest, whatever. One twenty five, yeah, that's cool and all, but like, you know, I'm gonna want to sharpen that all the time and carry it every day. But what's what's like, for example, my favorite for all around use is CTS XHP when it's available. Mm-hmm. Yeah, XHP is not my favorite. Uh, it's not bad, uh, but uh, I've done a simple corrosion test on a bunch of steels. Uh, I I heat treat them and finish them to 400 grit to represent kind of a rough production finish. And then I spray them with uh, distilled water uh, to check if they're stainless. And I've only had two stainless steels fail that test, and one of them was XHP. Uh, the other was was ZDP 189. Uh, and then after they pass that test, then I move on to a 1% saltwater test. And for most of the knife steels, they, they, uh, I've been able to differentiate between the different ones using 1% saltwater. Uh, but I'm getting sidetracked on corrosion resistance. So uh, one of my favorite steels is AEBL. So my dad used it in Damascus for a long time. Uh, John Verhoeven wrote about it in his book, uh, and I, I have a big article on it, of course. Uh, so the, the history of it and the design of it is very interesting to me uh, because it's a stainless steel that's designed for high toughness and fine microstructure, which are uh, properties that are usually thought of as, as being uh, simple carbon steels. So they were able to design a stainless you know, way back in the day in like the 50s, 60s, that had a structure that was just as fine as a carbon steel for razors, uh, but was still stainless and had high toughness. Uh, and so that steel uh, can take really thin edges. Uh, I like thin edges with low angle uh, grinds on them uh, so that they cut really, really well. And AEBL does really good at that because of its high toughness and fine microstructure. Of course, it's very easy to sharpen. Uh, so I, I really like AEBL. Uh, now for for tool steels, my my favorites are probably uh, CPM Four V or Venetis Four Extra or CPM Crewware. Those are kind of in a similar category, uh, and those are all powder metallurgy steels, and they have kind of medium edge retention. You know, a little bit higher edge retention than AEBL. Uh, and a little bit drop in toughness, but they have a really good balance of of edge retention and toughness. And uh, what I would really love to do with steel design is to make something in that property range, uh, but is also stainless. And it's really challenging to do, you know, because you're trying to balance corrosion resistance against those other properties. Uh, but I have uh, 
a, a really good uh, idea of how to do that, and uh, we'll we'll see if we can we can make it work. Yeah, I'm not too familiar. I haven't really used Square ABL. I'm very familiar with. I've made thousands of knives, and about eighty percent of the knives that I've left in my shop are out of ABL. Uh, so I do like ABL, uh, but overall, like because I also factor in actually working with it. And uh, ABL is actually very easy to work with, even easier than CTSXHP. Um, I just, for some reason, that CTSXHP, um, it finishes more evenly sometimes. ABL is very consistent, but sometimes CTS, I don't know if it's the consistency of Carpenter's role. Uh, I just always liked it overall working and using it. But yeah, ABL is a pretty close second for me. Also, I just like the ABL because it's real, relatively easy for me to get because I just have to drive about 25 minutes and pick up as much as I need. Yeah. So that's a yeah, nice a, factor. ABL is cheap and it's easy to work with. Uh, the main complaint about it is usually warping uh, because they yep. they make it uh, in coils. And uh, it the steel really likes to go back to that shape that it was in before you turned it into a flat knife. So that that's, seems to be the main complaint about the steel from knife makers. Yeah, uh, in the last few years, I started normalizing all of it because uh, I do only I do mainly folders, so I normalize all my titanium. So I just I start normalizing most of my steel as well, reduces a lot of that. But I, I, yeah, I know that definitely a common complaint I hear. Uh, once heat treating, it tends to go back, especially after tempering. So as a, as a project, the knife steel nerds, maybe project isn't the right word, but as a Maybe it is. Where is this? Where is this taking you? Where Where is the Where is the destination of this? Like, it, where are you going to be in five years with this? Still doing this or developing? You're, you're talking about developing your own steel. Um, can we get into that a little bit? Like, wh- what's your eventuality? Yeah, I don't think there's really a master plan or a goal for knife steel nerds. Some people have criticized me for not having a master plan. You know, like. Yeah, I need to be trending in a certain direction, but basically it's a hobby project of mine, Knife Steel Nerds, and whatever that ends up being is what it is. Uh, So I I try to keep whatever's in front of me in mind and not get lost in what I might do later. You know, whatever experiment or project I'm working on, I kind of focus on that. Uh, But, you know, I mentioned doing some consulting projects uh, and designing new steels, uh, working with different companies to try to make those happen. You know, none, none of those are ready to announce, obviously, like I said. Uh, so, you know, it's all connected, but it's all kind of separate. You know, Knife Steel Nerds was not a website to promote me in any way. You know, I, I didn't start it to, uh, you know, because it's all leading up to the release of a book or the release of a steel or something. You know, it's all just my my hobby, Knife Steel Nerds. So, yeah, I'm just just doing one thing at a time. Uh, but if you want to talk about steel design specifically, we can try to get into that. If you had any any questions to get started, I mean, I I have really I have no concept of how to even start to, <laughs> to, to start that. So I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah. So you're so you're just you're trying to design. I mean, I don't know. I would imagine that's trying to design something that's very hard given the amount of product already out there. But I mean, I, I suppose that's what intrigues you is the challenge to create something new and, and better than the rest. Yeah, there's a long history of steel development. And uh, I'll try not to get too much into the history. But one of the fun things in Knife Steel Nerds has been trying to find the history. It's very difficult. Most of it is not easily Googleable. 
you know, if you just type in history of D2 tool steel, you'll find a lot of one paragraphers that are mostly incorrect. Uh, so trying to find the history of different steels is fun. You know, how did they develop them? How did they figure out how to get certain sets of properties? So th- th- that's been fun for the website. Uh, but, you know, when you're designing a steel, you're really looking at the different trade-offs that are available and trying to see what the gaps are in the market. You know, what are customers interested in? What are knife companies interested in? What are knife makers interested in? Uh, that if it were available, they would want to use it. Uh, now, there's a whole host of, of things that go into that. Uh, you know, maybe your big three properties are, are toughness, edge retention, and corrosion resistance, uh, assuming you're making a stainless steel. Uh, but then there's a whole bunch of things that go along with that. Uh, you know, Nick mentioned the ease and finishing of XHP. Knife makers care a lot about finishing. Knife companies don't care as much about ease and finishing. They more care about grindability, you know, removing material rather than than the final polishing of it. Uh, so and then there's ease and heat treating. You know, certain steels you have to osinitize at high temperatures. Uh, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, a lot of guys had Paragon brand furnaces that topped out at 2,000 degrees. So if you came out with a knife steel that had to be heat treated at 2,100 degrees, you know, they they couldn't use it. Uh, so those are those are some of the things you have to be aware of when you're designing a steel. Uh, but then there's also breakthroughs in in design or development. You know, over the decades, they they discovered new things. You know, one big one was was powder metallurgy that was introduced in the very early 70s by Crucible. Uh, and you know, powder metallurgy led to finer microstructures. They were able to make steels that had uh, better toughness for a given level of wear resistance. Just due to the technology that they were using. And, uh, oh, and when you're designing a steel, uh, you're, you're, you have all these different variables you're trying to optimize. Uh, like I said, heat treating and polishability, grindability are, are some of them. And you do that by controlling uh, the microstructure of the steel. So you're designing it with a certain composition to try to get a certain set of, of carbides in, in your steel. The carbides are those hard particles that give you wear resistance. So, you know, you want to get the right carbide structure to give you your your combination of toughness and and edge retention that you're looking for. And at the same time, you got to have the right amount of carbon uh, in the steel so that it hardens to the right level. You got to have the right amount of chromium so that it's going to be stainless. And uh, all of these things compete with each other. So you add more and more chromium, and uh, the 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 structure gets more and more coarse and eventually you have poor toughness steels. And, you know, that's part of why for a long time uh, people bragged about their carbon steels being way tougher than, than the stainless steel knives that were available uh, just because the, the microstructures were so much different between the two. So uh, when I'm designing a new steel, you know, I really want uh, to hit a region of properties uh, for something that is not in the market that people would be interested in. And I want to do that through some innovation in in the microstructure of the steel. I want to eliminate or add something that hasn't been done because it's very challenging. So uh, when I want to design a, a stainless steel that's just as good as a non-stainless steel, one of the things I want to do is try to get rid of the chromium carbides. Now, I'm going to try to explain this as simply as possible without getting too technical for the podcast, but uh, 
carbides come in different hardnesses, all the way from iron carbides and simple carbon steels up to vanadium carbides in a lot of the so-called super steels with really high edge retention. And vanadium carbides are very high in hardness, so they contribute more to edge retention. The harder the carbide, the better the wear resistance and the better the the slicing edge retention. Uh, now, carbides are also bad for toughness. The more carbide you have, the worse the toughness is. So you want more carbide in there to make it have better edge retention, but more carbide also makes the toughness worse. Uh, but harder carbides aren't any worse for toughness. So a vanadium carbide doesn't necessarily drop toughness any more than an iron carbide, even though it's much harder. So if you have the same amount of carbide, but it's all hard vanadium carbides, then you have better toughness for a given level of wear resistance. Uh, so you know, you have a steel with 8% iron carbide or chromium carbide versus 8% vanadium carbide. The toughness is sort of similar, but the, the vanadium carbide version is going to cut a lot longer. So if you can get rid of those softer carbides and have only vanadium carbide, then you can optimize your toughness edge retention balance. Uh, and with stainless steels, all of the available ones all have a very healthy amount of chromium carbide. Uh, and uh, one other side note is that in powder metallurgy steels, the chromium carbides are a little bit bigger than the vanadium carbides, which also makes them worse for toughness. So stainless powder metallurgy steels actually are worse for toughness than their non-stainless counterparts because they have chromium carbides in them. And if a, a uh, smart metallurgist was able to develop a stainless steel without chromium carbides, then uh, you could match the properties of the non-stainless steels. You could match a CPM 4V or a Venetus 4 Extra or a 10V or a 3V, uh, but with stainless levels of corrosion resistance. So that is the goal. And uh, I don't know why no one has done it. It appears to be possible according to modeling software uh, that is available. Uh, so I think maybe they... Maybe they've tried it and it didn't work, or maybe they uh, have certain design uh, historically that they've used that they have a hard time letting go of, uh, but I think it can be done, and we'll see. We'll see. That's just, They just weren't you. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah, it's because I'm so much smarter than all of these uh, PhD metallurgists that came before me or are currently working. <laughs> well, I mean, though, like I've seen a lot of tests in the past. People make a steel on paper. It seems great. But then it's hell to heat treat or they'll heat treat it and it'll work as a steel. But it finishes for like, for example, like the first batch of Nitro V I used. Uh the first batch they did something was off in the numbers or the original formula wasn't great and steel looked great. It worked fine. It ground fine. The heat treated properly. You got the 61 that I wanted. Uh, but I grind the sat and grind and there would almost be uh, a, what looked like a hormone within the sat and grind. It wouldn't show up in the edge. It almost looks like a, like a fracture within the, the steel, like a crack and Things like that pop up when they were making new steels. Because every time an NJ Steel brand made something new or they received something new or for something for testing, I usually tried it. And I always made sure I heat treated it in-house and finished it in two ways. One, acid uh, ferric chloride etching it to see how it came out. Uh, and then one, doing a side and grind and just shimmering the, the actual, usually a 220 grit because you would see a nice grain structure with a 220 grit. Uh 
to to see what it would look like. And the first batch in Light Trivia had that issue where most of the time a Saturn grind would have this almost, like I said, look like a crack going down the edge, not the edge, uh, halfway down the hollow grind, uh, catching light in a weird way, almost like I said, almost looks like a homone. Um, main reason I always use 220, uh, like I said, I usually use five steels. And when they're raw, I can't really tell what it is. Uh, I could almost, but by the scale, I could see if it's CPM or who rolled it, usually based on the surface finish, I could tell. Uh, but if it's hard and I grind it with 220, I could I could call out four out of those five steels I use just based on how the sheen of the grind looks like, just out of experience. And that's the test that happens with like new steels, like you mentioned on paper. It might seem like it works great. But once you heat treat it, it might not look great or it might not grind great or it might not etch great. And for knives, at least, it kind of all those factors really matter. As you, like, as you mentioned earlier, like knife makers, we look at it as one way. We don't just look at it as an end result. We also see how it is to work with them. Yeah, there, there's two big things you're bringing up there. One is that you can design a product and you can hit all of your design goals and it performs just how you wanted it. Uh, but it's just not what the customers want for whatever reason. You know, you made a sports car for grandmas and they wanted a comfy SUV. You know, you just, you didn't make the right product for what the people want. Or you made 15V and you wanted to make the most wear resistant, highest edge retention steel ever. And the knife makers didn't want to use it because it was too hard to work with and it wasn't stainless, you know, something like that. Uh, the, the other thing is you can develop a product in the laboratory or with computer modeling and uh, it looks great. You know, first you make it in a model or kind of with some qualitative, uh, you know, thinking like, oh, I need to add a little more carbon or a little more of this. Uh, and then you make it in the lab and it and it looks great. Uh, then you try to make it in a at a production manufacturing level and it just fails. You know, something isn't working or, you know, it's not in the it, when you're making it at a mass scale, it's not forming the same kind of structures as it was in a small scale in, in a laboratory production type environment. Uh, so, you know, you can develop something and it can look good at a lot of different stages and then end up failing for for different reasons, either in, in the manufacturing of it uh, or the end customer can't work with it or the end customer just didn't want that product. So when I'm talking about steel design, uh, there are no guarantees. So I, I could I could work on something that looks awesome to me and it doesn't go anywhere. But, uh, you know, that's that's product development. Mm hmm. Um, there's one more thing that I had on my list that I forgot to mention earlier. Um, have you messed around much with, uh, with spray form steels? I've been interested in trying that PSF 27, uh, the spray form. Cause right now I'm working on a fixed blade project and essentially it's going to be in made in batches of 60. Uh, but every 60 is going to be a different steel. Uh, so I've been looking into the PSF stuff since I don't really have much experience with it and it just interests me since I haven't really used it. Uh, one of the biggest factors for me for steel, like I said, one for finishing, uh, the first thing I do with a steel is once I make it, I do an acid wash. If the acid wash doesn't look good because it doesn't take a good acid edge, can't use it because custom eyes are more about aesthetics than function in reality. Sure. I, 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 I won't argue with you about aesthetics versus function for now. We'll leave that aside and we'll talk about uh, spray form steel. Uh so spray form is an intermediate technology, intermediate between conventional steel making and powder metallurgy. So with conventional steel, you know, they they melt up uh, a big vat of liquid iron, they add some carbon and other elements to it, they pour it in in a mold and it slowly solidifies into a big steel ingot. 
And uh, that leads to somewhat coarse structures because it slowly solidifies. Uh, alloying elements will segregate to each other. Uh, you get carbides that grow really big. Uh, where with powder metallurgy, they take that liquid steel, it goes through a small nozzle, and it gets sprayed with nitrogen gas usually. And uh, as it sprays that that liquid stream of steel, it it rapidly solidifies these tiny particles. You know, it, it's like a powder. And then they take that powder and they put it in a in a big can, and under temperature and pressure, it creates a solid ingot that they then work like normal. So because the the steel solidifies so rapidly, the final microstructure ends up much uh, much finer. Though spray form, rather than than the the steel completely solidifying into powder, and then they they put it in the can and hip it. Uh, what they do is that uh, the the table at the bottom where they're, they're spraying the powder onto, they move it up so that the steel is still partially liquid. It's still solidifying. And so they have this rotating table where they're spraying this semi-molten powder onto it and they build up an ingot that way. So they kind of skip that step where they have to put it under high temperature and pressure. Uh, so it comes out as an ingot at the end. Uh, but it's intermediate between the two technologies because uh, it doesn't uh, solidify quite as rapidly because uh, of the way they do that, where it's semi-molten. So it's not as fine as powder uh, powder metallurgy? Yeah. So uh, on my website, I have comparisons between D2, PSF27, and CPMD2. Those are all identical composition, but made either conventionally with spray form or, or powder metallurgy. And the PSF... Yeah, so the PSF27 is, is right in between the two. Uh, it might look a little closer to powder metallurgy, uh, than it does to conventional. Um, there's not a lot of spray form steels available. PSF 27 is really the primary one that you can buy with any regularity right now, at least yeah, for totally knives. It's the only one I'm really familiar with. Uh, well, as you mentioned, I haven't really seen any others. Now, I got to read your article uh, on that because like I, I just wanted to try it because it was something different because that project was specifically to try different steels out and see how they finish. And for guys who are collectors, who actually the fixed blades are more for using. Uh, if they wanted to buy the same knife in multiple steels just to mess around with themselves, uh, that would be a project that I wouldn't heat treat in-house. I'd outsource for better results. But uh, I got to read your article, like I said, because I was under the impression based on what I read that uh, spray form was actually finer than powder. No, uh, that's what no, I read. It's, it's, metals, it, it's in between. Uh, now, I did heat treat a CPM D2 toughness specimen a long time ago, and I'm still waiting on it to be machined. But we have tested PSF 27, and it did have considerably better toughness than conventional D2. So the finer microstructure did improve the properties. So I'm interested to see how much better the CPM version might be. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. We'll definitely give that article a little read. Yeah, so uh, search for 42 micrographs. It's actually much more than 42 micrographs, but that was the original. Oh, micrographs just meaning uh, a, a picture you take with a microscope of the steel structure. And I've got pictures of, of a lot of different knife steels. A lot, yeah, so notice you have a lot of photos on your site, uh, like on their microscope. Are you just pulling those off online? Or are you taking those yourself? Uh, or are you yeah, so at the beginning, I had to use what was available uh, you know, in the literature, or uh, I got some micrographs that were taken by Sandvik Steel a long time ago. Uh, but anything in the past year or maybe two years were micrographs that I took. 
Uh, so w- what I do is I heat treat little steel coupons uh, in my garage, in my furnace. Uh, and then uh, equipment for making uh, metallographic specimens is very expensive because they all sell it to big laboratories and universities that uh, have, you know, mostly just buy things without question. So I couldn't pay for most of those things. So I bought uh, just some regular epoxy and uh to make these little cylindrical like mounts that are common for microscopes, metallurgical microscopes, I bought a pink silicone muffin pan off of Amazon. So I just stick the steel specimens in the silicone muffin pan and I mix up the epoxy and pour it in and let it uh, harden. And then I bought a, a lapping machine normally used for polishing rocks. Uh, you know, that was, that was a few hundred dollars off Amazon. And I bought some some sandpaper to go on it. And then I polished the steel on there and, uh, I ordered some acid. Well, first I ordered the acid, then they rejected me because I'm not, uh, a, a real company, uh, they can't ship to a residence apparently. So instead I shipped it to work and hope nobody asked too many questions. And then, so I got the acid, you have to etch the steel in acid so that it reveals the different microstructures. And uh, then we have some, we have microscopes at, at the company where I work and, um, you know, they, they just sit there most of the time when nobody's using them. So I, I can go in and, and look at the steel and I, I take pictures. They're very nice little microscopes that it'd be expensive to get one just as nice for my house. Maybe someday. Yeah, that's what I was asking. Cause the photos you're taking, they look just like, oh, pretty much like the professional uh, ones out there on spec sheets. Mm-hmm. Well, so I am a sure professional. So. Or, you know, <laughs> as you mentioned, like it's really expensive equipment, but you're kind of uh, DIY garage rigging it there with the epoxy with the epoxy setup. Yeah, it's kind of a strange mixture between me doing work in the garage uh, as a hobby, but then you know I don't want to do it if I can't do it right. So what I can do in the garage, I do in the garage, and what needs nice equipment, I find the way to to get it done. Yeah, I mean, sometimes that's whatever it takes, uh, you know, any means necessary. I like like the idea of you bringing in like um, like steel subjects to take photographs uh, at work. I mean, that's I guess it's all steel. So probably nobody really asks any questions. Yeah, sometimes people people ask, uh, you know, I'll tell them about knife steel or whenever they hear about my dad or knife steel, they ask me about forged and fire because that's the only thing they they know about related to, to yeah, knives. I get, that every, I get that every three days. Yeah, <laughs> so it, 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 here and there, I worry that some manager might might get suspicious and and they think that you know the equipment should only be used for this or that even if it's not doing anybody any harm or costing anyone any money but in general people have been interested and you know they'll ask some questions i'll talk to them about it and so i haven't had any issues i think in general people have been supportive you know as long as i'm getting my work done so boss i know you're still listening i'm getting all my work done don't worry (laughs) that's awesome that's very cool all right um is there anything that we didn't cover that you that you wanted to to share uh well probably but um you know i I, i'm doing doing steel research and if you're interested in steel uh you know come come on knifesteelnerds.com or follow me on instagram uh and you know i'm i'm talking steel so if you want to want to debate about whether 204p is better than 20 cv then you can come talk to me (laughs) 
There we go. I'm, you know, I'm sure that there are, and I know that there are lots of people who, who would love to do that. Yeah, there, there's um, a surprising... And you have a Patreon as well, right? Yeah, the Patreon. Um, at, when I first set up the website, I wasn't planning on getting any money for anything. You know, just this was going to be my hobby where I wrote about stuff. But, you know, then I, I wanted to do experiments and I just couldn't afford to do them. My wife is not happy when I buy, you know, $2,000 heat treating furnaces just to feed my website with content. Uh, so I, I set up the Patreon. I hoped I might get, you know, a handful of people. And it turns out way more people want want knife steel research than than you would guess. Uh, I forget how many supporters I have now. I think it's over 150, which is it, if you had told me that three years ago that 150 people would want to want to pay money to get knife steel research done. I would say there's not that many people interested. But <laughs> so, yeah, that. that and all of that money is being spent on equipment and steel and and other costs of doing stuff, you know, shipping things and, uh, you know, just everything adds up. You know, the, the Catra edge retention experiments we talked about, uh, between the cost of my consulting and the cost of material and the cost of getting them all ground and produced and the, the paper stock to cut, you know, that's been about 12 grand and about... Uh, and about a third of that was covered by Patreon. So without Patreon, there's no way my wife would approve of all of these these experiments. So if you want the experiments to keep happening, then then yeah, come on Patreon. It's been amazing for what we've been able to get done. I mean, that's that's awesome. That's a huge amount of uh, a huge amount of of support. That's legit. Yeah, yeah, I, that's great. I, I have people that contact me and are excited to talk about steel or knife makers with questions and. Uh, I, I don't even charge my standard consulting fee for all of their questions about, about their bad heat treating. So, uh, you know, come, come talk to me on, on Instagram. I won't charge you any money. Uh, I probably should. Oh, an earlier version of my Patreon said, if you were a supporter, you could ask me questions, but then people send me emails and I just answer all their questions. So I had to remove that from, from the site. So, uh, it, comes up pretty frequently you know i heat treated this and it warped bad or i heat treated this it came out at 50 rockwell it was supposed to be 62 or you know it, it happens all the time so i'm happy to answer questions all right and you did mention um shows do you still go to knife shows i haven't been to a knife show in a couple years i was planning on going to blade show but of course that's that's been delayed so i don't know right now if i'll go i had to cancel my my hotel reservation that i had so i was excited to go to blade show again uh but so i hope to go to more shows um i'd love to get invited to more hammer ins or other other events like that um assuming they ever start again or if we're just living in the apocalypse now uh so yeah presenting at hammer ins or talking to people at shows that would be great i'd like to do more of it so i've only gone to i don't know a handful of small events over the past couple years since knife steel nerds started well i think i think it would be great to to have you out at at some shows i'm sure that you would probably just be completely overwhelmed by an intense amount of questions only half of which would be asinine yeah Uh, you know all my adoring fans great to have a table I'd have to push him away, <laughs> hire a bouncer. There you go. Yeah, a bodyguard. Yep, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. All right. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I think uh I think I think we've covered it and uh and uh, and on that note, I think I think we're going to we're going to we're going to wrap it up. I I really uh I appreciate you coming on and taking taking time with us um on the podcast today. Yeah, anytime. No, no. Uh 
Nick Chupin here. You can find me at NCC Knives on Instagram, nccknives.com, or and get in contact with me on my contact page on nccknives.com. This is Jeremiah Burbank with PVK Vegas. You can find me on Instagram on my day job at PVK Vegas uh, or my personal Instagram, PVK Jer. Thanks for listening. Uh, yeah, check me out at knifestillnerds.com. On Instagram, I'm knifestillnerds. So we've got lots of fun content. So please come and talk to me about steel. Thanks, guys. <laughs>